Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In our third season, we'll explore investing in a post-pandemic world. After a year and a half of COVID-19 dominating nearly every investment conversation, vaccine rollouts are now well underway and the global economy is recovering at a much faster pace than following past recessions. But as we emerge from the pandemic bunker, the financial landscape looks very different from when we went in. In this season, we take a wide-angle lens to the investment environment to discuss economic trends and long-term themes in markets and how COVID-19 has shaped them. Over the course of a dozen episodes, we'll speak with experts on a variety of topics in an attempt to provide some insight on investing for a post-pandemic world. The first half of 2021 has been characterized by a very strong recovery from the pandemic recession, with a powerful pickup in GDP growth and equity markets reaching new all-time highs. As we head into the second half of the year, the US is expected to continue on its path to full recovery. But several challenges remain. More contagious variants of the coronavirus have emerged. Taxes are likely to increase. And the Fed is mulling tapering its massive bond purchases. Meanwhile, valuations across equity and fixed income markets are looking stretched. Kicking off this season with a discussion on these important issues, I'm very glad to be joined by Michael Semblist, a global leader in investment management, author of Eye on the Markets, and chairman of the Market Investment Strategy Group here at JP Morgan. So, Mike, welcome to Insights Now. Oh, thanks, David. Uh, so, to start, I know you've been researching this pandemic and the vaccine efforts very intently over the past year. Do you think the pandemic is truly winding down in the United States, or will variants and low vaccination rates in some regions actually keep it going? Oh, I think almost certainly the latter. Um, Even when smallpox was eradicated, it took them three to five years to figure out for sure that it was actually gone. Um, And there they had an extremely high compliance rate with the vaccines um, and very high levels of antibody responses to it. So no, this time around, not no such luck, obviously not as deadly a disease as smallpox. uh, But this thing is going to be lingering. And I think most vaccine companies now think that uh, there'll be booster shots every couple of years, um, you know, in in perpetuity. And okay, and so that's where we are in the United States, given our vaccine efforts here. What about the rest of the world? Is the rest of the world really lagging behind that much in terms of vaccination? Is it going to be a different story? Uh, I think so. Although, you know, the Europe showed and Canada how quickly a vaccination gap can be made up by countries that have well-organized healthcare systems that track people. Um, Europe has now surpassed the United States in terms of vaccinated people, uh, percentage shares of the population, which seemed unimaginable a couple of months ago. Um, but, you know, it can be done. Uh, the, the emerging world is anywhere between 10 and 20 percent vaccinated, depending on whether or not you, you weight the numbers by GDP or by population. Um, I tend to look at the GDP weighted ones, but even those numbers are only around 20 or 25 percent. So there's a ways to go. And the headwinds they've got is that, you know, Pfizer and Moderna have constrained production. And there are now questions about the efficacy of some of the Chinese vaccines, particularly Sinovac. Yeah, so it's not not quite done with the pandemic, but the uh, but certainly the, the vaccination efforts and and um, and sort of get, getting past the worst of the pandemic in the United States and Europe is, is obviously a big positive. Yes, I think the you know, the I would say. 95% of the issues that the US, Europe, and Canada will face going forward are illnesses in pockets of unvaccinated people in typically rural counties. And um, as I wrote the other day, um, I don't think government policy is going to change 
uh, to protect a cohort that is, for the most part, not protecting itself. Um, so, okay, so we will hopefully then be getting out of the pandemic in terms of its impact on the economy, because either either the pandemic is gone or in certain regions, people kind of ignore it, but try to get back to normal e- economic life. That's one big booster shot, so to speak, for the economy. The other one is fiscal policy. We've had tremendous fiscal stimulus throughout this pandemic and its aftermath. Um, do you think that's going to continue? Where are we in terms of fiscal stimulus coming out of Washington? A lot of the fiscal stimulus outcome is still being debated um, and negotiated this very month. Over the next three to four weeks, we will we should have some kind of outcome. And the numbers are big in terms of how of how the negotiations may end up. Um, some of the Democratic conservative senators, to the extent that you would still define some Democrats as conservative, some of the fiscal conservatives like Manchin and Cinema are saying that they really can't handle more than one and a half to two trillion dollars of additional taxes and spending. Uh, other parts of the Democratic Party are pushing for three and a half to four trillion. So the amount of fiscal stimulus that we may get and how much is financed and how much is is subject to revenue raises is still being negotiated. Um, that said, you know, the enormous pulse of fiscal stimulus that took place uh, last year is obviously winding down. And all that, you know, all that we're do, all that we're talking about now is just how quickly it goes back to some kind of normal fiscal pulse level. But, yeah, it's pretty clear that the pulse from fiscal policy is going to be lower in the years ahead than it's been over the last couple of years. And it should be because you're going to get a much greater pulse from the private sector. Well, that's right. I mean, the economy is recovering very rapidly. Uh, we're, you know, in the second quarter, we likely surpass the peak output in the last expansion. And the economy is still growing rapidly going into the second half of the year. Uh, given all of that, and given you know some of the uncertainty about fiscal policy, uh, let's turn over to, to the Federal Reserve. Um, what do you see as the Fed's timetable, both in tapering bond purchases and then eventually, uh, presumably, raising short-term interest rates? Uh, to simplify, I think... I think it makes sense to to only pick from one of three items on a menu. You either think the Fed is going to act as implied in the futures markets for various things, or you think they're going to act more quickly or more slowly. Uh, I think the Fed is going to act more slowly than what's implied in most market extrapolated expectations of policy rates and tapering. Um, and the reason for that is I think the, the, the Fed has become as politicized as it's ever been. Um, uh, and I also think the Fed is going to be very reluctant to do anything to get in the way of a recovery in wages at the low end of the spectrum that they and a lot of other politicians and economists think are important in terms of erasing some of the income inequality and wealth inequality gaps in the country. So uh, uh, my money is on the Fed being late to the party. Uh, in terms of uh, normalizing monetary policy. So the Fed's not really pressing on the brakes. There's still some fiscal stimulus coming down the pike. The economy is recovering pretty rapidly. I guess the biggest question in the summer of 2021 is, if all this is going on, why are long-term government bond deals so low in this environment? Well, I, let's remember, you know, the the... And, and this was a chart that we had in one of the recent pieces we published. The Treasury 
on a net on a net basis, all of Treasury net issuances was consumed by the Fed. So it's it's hard to it's hard to see the capital markets pricing in any kind of deterioration in 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 the inflation outlook when the Fed's on standby to purchase all of the net issuance from the Treasury. I mean that's that's the kind of thing that. It, it are the distortions we saw decades ago taking place in emerging market countries. So uh, we don't the, the the market variables we'd normally be tempted to look at aren't free range chickens at this point. They're highly manipulated. You also have pretty substantial demand from full from close to fully funded uh, defined corporate defined benefit plans, which have high funding ratios, obviously not the state and local systems, but the. Uh, the corporate plans are fully funded, and and there's long duration demand that comes from foreign central banks and global insurance companies. So um, I think eventually, if you asked me where where the ten year would be two three years from now, um, I I think closer to three to three and a quarter percent. But obviously, I think it's going to take time to get there, particularly if the Fed is going to be as aggressive as they've been at essentially monetizing the debt. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, th that's sort of the same conclusion we've come to that uh, that a lot of this really is the artificial nature of a lot of the demand for bonds right now, which is just uh, you know um, overriding the economic and inflation signals we're getting. Um, yeah, I, I just just yes. to make it clear, there is a school of thought that the bond market is telling you that the markets believe that the recovery is going to roll over and and is signaling concerns about. Post-recovery growth, I don't buy it. Yeah, uh, absolutely, I, I agree with you. Um, so, with that as a backdrop, then um, if we turn to equity markets, we're in the early days of the second quarter earnings season after a really spectacular first quarter, and it looks like this is going to be another very good quarter, and indeed a record in operating earnings in 2021. But do you think that earnings can continue to grow from these very elevated levels going into 2022? I think so. Um, you know, with the caveat that I think wage pressures are building and eventually, you know, compared to most other countries, U.S. profits have a higher share of labor costs than almost anywhere else. Um, you know, for example, I think they're around two thirds of overall NIPA input costs. And in a country like China, it's closer to 15 to 20 percent. So labor costs are a big deal in the U.S. That said, there's a lot of operating leverage on in U.S. company balance sheets and income statements, which means Little bits of increase in nominal GDP growth can translate into fairly substantial earnings gains. So I'm pretty optimistic on earnings growth. I don't necessarily think margins are going to change that much. Um, and uh, and I think multiples are more likely to contract than expand. But I'm, I'm optimistic that in a reflationary scenario where the Fed is behind the curve, you'll get a pretty decent bounce in, bounce in, in operating earnings. And so going into so we've obviously going to have a lot of momentum going into 2022, but presumably the economy is going to grow more slowly as we go through 2022, and 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 also perhaps a corporate tax increase. You think we will see a corporate tax increase? Yeah. So part of the negotiations are just how much. Um, it looks like the corporate tax increases will be a third or so, or forty percent of Biden's original proposal. Uh, so, for example, while the corporate tax rate is going to go back up to, uh, let's say, 25 percent, um, it's not going to go to 28 percent. Um, the that the guilty tax on low checks jurisdictions um, 
is not necessarily going to be set at at as aggressive a level as Biden was originally proposing. Biden's original proposal, I think, was something like 26 and a quarter and may end up at 15. In other words, as long as you're paying above that level, you won't have to pay an incremental tax on on taxes earned in foreign jurisdictions. Um, He was originally proposing much higher industry specific taxes on financials and oil and gas. Um, There was something called a shield tax that was originally going to impact foreign companies operating in the U.S. So across the board, it looks like the tax expectations have come down and the latest estimates we're seeing are that it would be something like a 5% hit to EPS in 2022, which and, is manageable. Um, okay, so so earnings still rising here. And you talked about valuations overall or multiples overall maybe coming down, but obviously there's a very big spread in multiples between different parts of the market yeah. right now. Do you think there are certain parts of the market which are more vulnerable than others in terms of multiple contraction? Um, you know, if, if you look at multiples relative to ROE, they, they actually plot reasonably well. In other words, it's the, the, it's the industries that are really doing the best job in terms of margins and growth that are commanding the highest multiples. But it just feels like the whole complex of multiples can tilt down. I mean, by the time by the time you're talking about companies that have multiples in the 40s, you could have you could easily have multiples in the 30s or high 20s and they'd still be fairly and they'd still be very fairly valued. Right. There, there are there are certain levels which are so high that even when they fall, they're still high. And and I think, you know, that we've had markets like this before where all of a sudden there's a bit of a, a recognition that people are overpaying for things. And so I and, I, you know, when you look at the rollover that t- has taken place this year in um, renewable energy stocks, right, hydrogen, batteries, certain wind and solar names, it, it's an example of in a, in a, in a subsector of how things can reprice and yet still be optimistic on the future. Yeah. Um, and you know, speaking, I know he's talking about renewable energy, but talking about energy in general, energy prices are up a lot. Commodity prices are up a lot. And if you go back over, over recent decades, a lot of recessions were preceded by a spike in commodity prices, a spike in energy prices. Do you think that's a risk right now? Yeah, well, um, Sometimes, you know, I think sometimes part of the shock from that happening is that there's just so much built into the system telling people that it won't happen so that when it happens, it's such a shock. Um, you know, last time oil futures, I think, peaked at like 140 or so in 2007, 2008 before they came back down. Um, a, a year ago in June of last year, you know, that annual energy paper that we write, we warned people. The energy prices we saw a year ago were not sustainable. Uh, they had nothing to do with the renewable energy revolution. And people that thought they were going to stay low because of stranded asset risks were in for a rude awakening. And that's what happened. I think we're getting close to a fairer representation of marginal cost for oil and natural gas um, at you know three and a half and $75 on WTI. So I, there's a possibility of a squeeze. But you know, I, I, I think we're getting close to the max of what the markets can absorb here based on supply and demand. Um, I don't expect there to be a resuscitation of the Iran deal, which would release another couple of million barrels a day onto the market, which would obviously soften things. But um, I, I don't I, I think the same kind of rollover that we've seen in lumber, um, we're going to eventually start to see in some of the other industrial 
uh, commodities like zinc and nickel and copper and aluminum, particularly with China slowing. And I expect I expect oil and gas prices to stabilize later this year. Okay. Um, all right. And, and lastly, one of the strongest sectors throughout this pandemic, and of course, in the years leading up to it also, has been the tech sector broadly. Um, but we're seeing a lot more regulation. We're seeing regulation talk in the United States. We're seeing a lot of regulation action in China. It seems like these tech companies are in the crosshairs of regulators. And what sort of a threat do you see uh, that as being to the sector um, going forward? Well, if you believe that the proposals from the House Judiciary Committee will eventually become law, those stocks are way too expensive. Uh, I don't think the Congress as a whole, because has a has has the inclination to pass them. I mean, they're really severe. They call for disgorging certain acquisitions, would almost certainly prevent them from making future acquisitions unless certain tests were made. Um, I, I think they'll end up passing some of them, but which aren't as impactful on earnings, such as requiring data portability as people leave one platform and go to another one. Uh, the Europeans will probably continue to inst to impose digital service taxes on U.S. tech companies operating in their jurisdictions. Um, I think you could see Apple forced to allow more competition uh, on the App Store. Maybe some tax changes on third party versus Amazon vendors. But, you know, the big ones about acquisitions and dispositions, I, I don't think we're going to get past. And I, don't, I, don't, I hate to boil it down to something as crude as this, but, you know, a bunch of people left Apple, Google, Facebook, et cetera, and joined Biden's campaign in the summer of 2020. And, you know, something te something tells me that the industry will will be able to prevent the worst outcomes from being passed as law from that House Judiciary Committee, although I'll it was interesting. For the first time, a lot of those bills had Republican have Republican co-sponsors. Yeah, that, that that is one of the threat. The threats is that, that certainly, um, when it comes to uh, social media companies, there seems to be a bipartisan dislike of them uh, at this stage, which which could have a a significant impact. And and one of the charts that we showed a couple, I mean, last year, some point, there have been three peaks in U.S. history. It, when the market cap of a certain sector to GDP hit a, a kind of ridiculous number. The first one was in the industrials in the late 60s, and then the second one was in the late 90s. And then when you look at the internet and um, digital media names right now, you're, you're at the same level. So there's, they've reached a levitation point where from here, continued penetration into the economy through various lines of business, I, I think we'll start to run into some headwinds politically. Interesting. Well, a lot of moving parts uh, as, as we come out of this pandemic. Uh, listen, thank you so much, Mike, for, for joining us on this. And thank you all for listening. Thank you, David. Please tune into our next episode, where I'll be joined by my colleague, Mira Pandit, Global Market Strategist here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, for a discussion on the pathway forward for taxes and investing. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. 
the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.